third lesson in Isaiah, the first one, we spent the entire time with the introduction. And then the last one, we spent a lot of time because the, we had a change in the, the, the people that were here. And tonight we have more new also. And so I'll just say a few brief things about Isaiah and then we'll get into the study of it in a different way tonight. Uh, first of all, we, when we look at Isaiah, we're going to study it tonight from the standpoint of some proposed prophecies about Christ and some things that happened in the New Testament. And in the introduction, we noted that anything that proposes to be a prophecy is only valid if you can prove that it was written or said in advance. If you can't prove it, then it is simply not prophecy. I mean, it doesn't do you any good unless you can prove it. So in order for what we're going to say tonight to have any validity, there's several things we have to be able to prove. Number one, we have to be able to prove that Isaiah was written in advance of the material we're going to talk about tonight, that it actually was written in advance. Number two, we have to be able to prove that it has been accurately transmitted. And number three, we have to be able to prove that the events themselves that we talk about are actual historical events that will stand the same kind of scrutiny as, say, the Civil War or World War II or anything else that you would study in history. And only if you can prove Isaiah was written in advance and that it was, has been accurately handled and that these events are actual historical events do we have anything that you can, that can call prophecy. All right, we noted in our introduction to Isaiah that we have an entire manuscript of Isaiah in the Dead Sea Scrolls that are about, the manuscript itself is about two centuries before Christ. So we have an actual manuscript of Isaiah about two centuries before Christ. And of course, it is a copy of one before it. The Greek Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures between 280 and 250 BC, contains in the Isaiah in its entirety. So that takes Isaiah back to between 280 and 250 B.C. All right, now, when you study Isaiah from the standpoint of the language, when you study it from the standpoint of the familiarity of the writer with the events of his day, with his use of the Hebrew language, uh, with his knowledge and understanding of the geography that the land, that this howl happened in, with his understanding of of the politics of the day. When we look at him in every way that we possibly can, the conclusion of scholarship is that it is written by an individual who is living at the time that all of this happened. And that we date Isaiah somewhere between 740 and 690 B.C. In other words, Isaiah presented this material over a period of about 50 years, from 740 to 690 B.C. In other words, he didn't just sit down and write what we have, the copy of Isaiah, in a few weeks' time. But really what you have in Isaiah is messages that was presented over about 50 years. And it's been put together in the form that we have it. It is not, for example, in perfect chronological order. We have the material, and it's there, and we can document so far as the timing is concerned. So far as the accuracy that it's been handled a good check is, has been with the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls uh, go back two centuries before Christ. 
Up until the Dead Sea Scrolls, the oldest manuscript we had of Isaiah was the 9th century AD. So there's 1,100 years between the Dead Sea Scrolls and the manuscript in the 9th century. And when you compare the Dead Sea Scroll manuscript with what we had in the 9th century, the improvements you can make are negligible. In other words, the, 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 what they really did was validate what an excellent job the Jewish scholars did in transmitting Isaiah. Uh, keep in mind, even if Isaiah is not inspired, the Jew believed it's inspired. And so because he believed it was inspired, he meticulously copied that and did not believe that he had the right to change any word of it. To the extent that scholars, even scholars who are not Jews or Christians, will tell you that there is no literature in the world that's been handled in the way that this book has. In other words, there's been no work of antiquity that the writers, as a result of their believing it was inspired, have handled it in such a meticulous way that they believed it was wrong to add anything to it or take anything away from it. All right, now, we'll stop there on the introduction because last week we, we spent, we, in fact, we spent two weeks on the, on the introduction, but suffice it to say, a whole lot more can be said that you can substantiate that this material was, was written between 740 and 690 B.C., you can substantiate that it's been accurately transmitted. Now, that doesn't prove it's inspired, but I'm saying that if it is inspired, you have to be able to substantiate that, and we can't. All right, now, we mentioned in the introduction to Isaiah that he is referred to as the Messianic prophet, uh, that there are more quotes in the New Testament from Isaiah than from any other prophet in the Old Testament. And it is the claim of the apostles in the New Testament, it was a claim of Jesus, that Isaiah prophesied many things about Jesus. All right, keep in mind now, one of the chief evidence used by the apostles in the New Testament that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ, that the Jews were looking forward to is that he fulfilled all these prophecies in the Old Testament. Okay, what we're going to do tonight is look at some specific prophecies from Isaiah in the New Testament and then after we look at it, we're going to turn back and look at the prophecy in the Old Testament in Isaiah. That's all we're going to deal with is Isaiah. But we're going to look at it in, in the entirety of its context and try to determine if Isaiah was specifically writing of some event in the future that we read about happening and we can document from secular history. Now, we noted in the introduction that prophecies by the prophets fell in three categories. There were those statements that were fulfilled within the lifetime of the prophet, and that substantiated him before his peers as a prophet of God. There were those statements that were fulfilled over the next generations, and it was those statements being fulfilled that caused them to reverence and respect that book and to accurately copy it and hold on to it because those things were being fulfilled before their eyes. Then these prophets spoke of a Messiah to come. All of the Old Testament pointed forth to a great person that was coming, and he was going to teach the world about righteousness. Uh, there was going to be salvation, redemption, eternal life, uh, all brought about as a result of this individual. They didn't fully understand it all, but they all looked forward to some great person that was coming. And so then the writers in the New Testament claimed that Jesus actually fulfilled all of those statements. All right, in Matthew, the first statement here about Isaiah, turn to Matthew, the third chapter. And notice how that uh, in the history 
of Jesus now. John the Baptist precedes Jesus. In fact, each of the of most of the early apostles were first taught by John the Baptist and baptized by him. And John the Baptist is set forth in the New Testament as one that prepared the way for Jesus. Jesus just didn't walk out and started start preaching. Before Jesus started teaching, John the Baptist went out before him and was telling the Jews to repent because the kingdom of heaven was at hand. And so he was preparing the way. Now, when we look at what is said here in Matthew about John the Baptist, remember, this is not just in the Bible. Josephus also writes of John the Baptist and calls him by name. And the description that Josephus gives of John the Baptist parallels what you have here. In fact, when it comes to the death of John the Baptist, there's more said about it in Josephus' writings than is said about it in the New Testament. So when we talk about John the Baptist, pictured in Matthew as preparing the way for Jesus, we're talking about something that's not just in the Bible, but it's recorded by a Jewish historian also. And so Jesus is regarded as a historical figure. John the Baptist is a historical figure. And in backing up before the people who John the Baptist was and what his job was, Matthew, who is writing to Jewish Christians and a book that he intends to be used to reach other Jews and prove that Jesus is the Messiah, is pointing out to them that John the Baptist came in fulfillment of a prophecy of Isaiah. So let's, somebody, let's see, Mark, would you read the first three verses of uh, Matthew 3? Okay. <clears throat> in those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the desert of Judea, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. Okay, now notice... <coughs> Matthew here points out that John the Baptist came in fulfillment of something said by the prophet Isaiah. Okay? The Jews were looking for a Messiah. And they knew their prophets had spoken of a Messiah. Matthew's gospel specifically emphasizes the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of those prophets. And we note here that Isaiah has been quoted. Now, in a few minutes, we're going to turn back and look at Isaiah. But here's a statement. Now, if we can show that Isaiah forecast that there would be a forerunner that would prepare the way for the Messiah, and then a person would come and teach things that this forerunner said he would, then we have some, at least one piece of evidence so far as prophecy and its fulfillment. All right, next, turn to Matthew 4. Matthew 4, uh, 12 through 17. So Matthew says that the first thing that happened now in the ministry of Jesus was that John the Baptist preceded him, called people to repent, baptized them, and he says that Isaiah spoke of this, and he quoted Isaiah. Okay, now, beginning in verse 12, and again, we're looking at something that happened that is said to fulfill a statement in Isaiah. Uh, Brian, would you read that, please? 12 through uh, 17. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light is dawned. 
From that time on, Jesus began to preach repent, began to preach repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Okay, I'm sorry, I got you too. Okay, notice the statement here. The historical part says Jesus heard that John had been put in prison. Okay, now this is not just in the Bible. Now Josephus also, the the Jewish scholar writing really as a Roman, records how John the Baptist was put in prison. He records that John the Baptist was a preacher of righteousness that got people to repent, that John identified himself as the forerunner of the Messiah. Okay, so when, it, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. It is it's fully accepted as a historical fact that Jesus began his teaching in Galilee and that John the Baptist was a forerunner. In other words, there's even the, an unbeliever would not deny that. It's been historical facts. Okay, leaving Nazareth. Now, Nazareth is a small city in Galilee. He went and lived in Capernaum. All right, Capernaum is also in Galilee, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Neptali, or Neptala, the way he pronounced it, whichever I've heard it pronounced both ways, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Okay, so Jesus goes to Galilee, leaves Nazareth, goes to Capernaum, and in Beginning his teaching there, Matthew said he's fulfilling something that Isaiah said about the Messiah. And here he, here he quotes Isaiah. He spoke of the land, and he names the two tribes there. The way of the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light is dawn. So Matthew makes the claim that Isaiah wrote that when the Messiah came, he would begin his teaching in Galilee of the Gentile. I want you to think for just a moment. It's re this is really unusual because you've got a Jewish prophet prophesying that when the Messiah come, he would begin his teaching not in Jerusalem, but in Galilee of the Gentiles, and that he would not be a light for just the Jews. He would be a light for the Gentiles. And keep in mind, at the time that Isaiah uttered this, and even at this present time, the Jews looked at the Gentiles in a way that was they were grossly inferior to them. They, not, they did not in any sense look at the Gentile as being equal. So I'm saying that when Isaiah forecast that he would be a light to the Gentile and he would begin his teaching there in Galilee of the Gentiles, this is not something that you would expect out of him based on his own thinking and education at a particular time. Now, it is accepted as a historical fact that you can document outside the Bible that Jesus began teaching in Galilee, that his initial followers were Galileans. All 12 of the original apostles from, were from Galilee. It's also the statement here that not only did Jesus begin his teaching there, but that Isaiah wrote, wrote of it, and not only did Isaiah write of it, that, but that he was speaking specifically of this event. Well, see, when we go back and look at the context, we want to know not only did Isaiah write it, but was Isaiah honestly looking forward to a time when a Messiah would come when he spoke of this event. Now, another thing from a standpoint of, of a fact here, a historical fact, and it refers to him as a, as a light, and that on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. We live 2,000 years this side of that event, and there are millions that still look back to that as a light. In other words, in an age of superstition, in an age of idolatry, in an age of war and hatred and bitterness, here comes a man teaching peace and love and mercy and promoting tranquility and all. 
And this was a light in a dark age. In a, in a time when people went to the grave with no hope at all, here came the first man to begin to talk about hope beyond the grave and to give some light on that particular subject. Okay, now, turn over to Acts. And here we have a record, you know, part of the record, obviously, of a conversion. And we're going to see the part that, again, the book Isaiah uh, played in this conversion. Isaiah 8, I mean, not Isaiah, Acts 8, beginning with verse 26. Okay, uh, let's see, verse 26 on through, uh, Steve, would you read that from 26 down through verse 35? An angel, angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out and on his way, met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important <coughs> official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to, to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, Go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants, for his life was taken from the earth? The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking of, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Okay, now, notice what happened here. Here we have the Ethiopian eunuch. And he's been to worship. He's on his way back. And Philip, we've already been identified, has already been identified to us as a person who is an evangelist of Christianity. All right, now keep in mind when you read about even Philip or anybody that's an evangelist of Christianity, we think of people as believing things that they've been brought up to believe. And in fact, we we think, well, you believe that because you've been brought up that way. Remember that every single person that is preaching Christianity was not brought up that way. Christianity is brand new on the scene. There's not a single solitary person that's been brought up to believe that Jesus was the Christ. The Jew was brought up to believe that a Messiah was coming. And these people have been, are Jews that have been convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. They were not brought up in Christianity, and when they embraced it, most of Judaism turned against them and even began to persecute them. Okay, here's the eunuch. He's a Jew. As a Jew, he believes in God. He believes in the law of Moses as a law of God. But he also believes that there's a Messiah coming. He doesn't understand everything. So he's reading Isaiah. And he's reading something, and it says here there's going to be somebody that will be like a, led like a sheep to the slaughter. But yet he won't argue about it. So here's somebody that he says he's going to be led to the slaughter, but he's going to be like a lamb. He'll just be quiet. It says, in his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. So this person that's being led to the slaughter is not going to argue about it. That sounds unusual. He's going to be deprived of justice. In other words, his killing is unjust. 
So here's a man being killed in an unjust way, and yet he's not arguing about it. He's just going to, like a lamb to his death. It says, who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. In other words, he will have no biological descendants because his life is, his life is going to be taken. All right? He's reading this passage, and Philip says, do you, do you understand what you're reading? He said he didn't. And then it says, he, Philip began at that place to talk to him about Jesus. Then the next statement was that he wanted to be, he requested to be baptized into Christ. Okay? This person then, who knew that a Messiah was coming, actually has Philip take a passage there and then began to tell him about Jesus and is convinced that Jesus is who this man is talking about. Okay? We're going to go back and we'll look at this in its context again and ask ourselves, was Isaiah writing something about a Messiah to come and that would not only contain this but other information? Because actually, this comes from verse 7 and 8 in Isaiah 53, and it's just part of an entire context. Now, all we've done so far is establish the fact that the New Testament definitely claims that Isaiah wrote of a Messiah to come and that in Jesus, everything about that Messiah meets their fulfillment. Now keep in mind, those initial thousands of people that were converted, like the 3,000 on Pentecost, these are devout Jews that have studied the prophets all their life. And so thousands of Jews became convinced. These are the people that was there where Jesus lived, they were familiar with the events that happened. They knew he had been executed. And these very skeptical people that had actually crucified him were now being convinced that he was the Messiah. And one of the chief evidences being used for the Jew was the fact that all of these events fulfilled prophecies. Keep in mind, you might say, well, how did they crucify Jesus at the same time believe he performed miracles? They had no problem accepting Jesus as a prophet of God. The miracles simply proved to them that he was a prophet of God. But Jesus claimed to be more than a prophet of God. He claimed to be the son of God. He claimed to be equal with God. And they, that was blasphemy. And there was no miracle going to convince the majority of the Jews that, that, that this was God. And so they then came to the conclusion, well, since that's blasphemy, he has to be a sorcerer, that these miracles have to be just the work of the devil or sorcery. And so based with that understanding, most of them believed he was false and killed him. Now, after the event, we've got an empty tomb. Okay? Keep in mind now, when we talk about the resurrection of Jesus, the debate is, is not over that empty tomb. All historians acknowledge that Jesus lived. All historians acknowledge that he was killed. All historians acknowledge that the tomb was empty. The question becomes, how did it become empty? Okay? The Jews that killed him knew this tomb was empty. And so what the writers are doing and what Philip is doing is trying to convince them, hey, you killed your Messiah, but God spoke of it in advance through your prophets. And it was through seeing this that they were convinced that he was, that he was the Messiah. That was the top evidence for them. Okay, now, looking now, there are other passages that we could use. There, uh, the New Testament is full of quotes about Isaiah. We picked that as a sample. Now let's go back to Isaiah. And we're going to look at some of the statements made by Isaiah concerning a Messiah and a kingdom to come. Okay. In Isaiah's day, 
he is primarily a preacher to the people. And he's always trying to get them to repent and to come back to the law. And he promises them if they don't repent, first of all, you've got the natural consequences of your sin. And, and on the other hand, when you obey God, there are natural benefits. And so he tried to get them to look at their lives and to see all the problems they were having because of sin. The second thing he did, he said, if you continue to sin, God is going to judge you as a nation. All right? What happened then, Isaiah gave a number of prophecies about Israel being judged as a nation. He tells them that the ten tribes will be defeated by Assyria and they will cease to be as a nation. He then tells them that Babylon will defeat Judah. But in defeating Judah, he tells them that they will come back and rebuild the city because God is using them to prepare the world for the Messiah. All right, now, when Isaiah gives a promise about a Messiah, it comes out of a situation where he has preached to the people, he's condemned them of their sin, he's tried to get them to repent. The, the, the truth is that they, their kings at best fall short. The truth is that nobody is perfectly keeping God's law. Those that are trying to follow God are frustrated because of the unbelief in the land. And it's out of this situation that the, that the prophet will be caught up and will look forward to a time when there will be righteousness here on the earth and God will send his Messiah that will lead the way. You're going to have a perfect king, somebody better than even David. Okay, beginning now with chapter 2 and verses uh, 1 through uh, 5. Let's see. Uh, what's your first name again? Nick. Nick. Okay. Nick, would you read that please? Verses 1 through 5. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. <clears throat> Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Okay, now notice several things here. It says, this is what Isaiah the son of Amos saw. In other words, Isaiah is saying that he had a vision from God and that he saw this. And it says, in the last days, now notice it's the last days of Judah and Jerusalem concerning Esau, concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And then in the last days. So the last days that he's pointing to is, is the last days. Here you have Israel as a fleshly nation, okay? And Israel as a fleshly nation has never fully followed God. God is using Israel to prepare the world for the Messiah. And so he looks forward. Israel is not following God right now. They never did fully follow God. And so he looks forward to a time of the last days of the nation of Israel. And then something's going to happen. It says, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established. It's chief among the mountains. It'll be raised above the hills. And notice now, it says, all nations will stream to it. So to these devout, prejudiced, biased Jews who thought that they were God's only chosen people, 
Isaiah looks forward to the end of Israel as a nation and to an event when all nations will stream to it. In other words, that God is going to be revealed to all nations and the benefits will go out to all people. It says, many peoples will come and say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. So not just Jews, but people from all over the world, all nations. All right, now, the end result now, there's going to come a time when this message will go to all nations. And it says the end result will be there will be someone that will teach us his ways. God's ways will be taught so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go forth from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Okay, remember what happened is that beginning with uh, Pentecost in Jerusalem is where Christianity really first began to be preached. And so the law of the Lord began to be taught uh, in Jerusalem there with all those nations the Jews had been scattered to all the nations they were there thousands would be converted they would then go back to all the nations where they were from and take that take that message so I'm saying the fact that that the message of Jesus went out beginning at Pentecost and that it would go into all the nations and all nations would buy into that that's a historical fact I mean that doesn't prove he's a messiah but it's a historical fact that that message went out from Jerusalem, that it went into all the nations, and that there were literally millions that bought into it. Okay, now, it says he will judge between the nations and will settle disputes. Okay, then he said, here's the end result. Notice it says he will teach us his ways. Well, what will be the end result in people who have been influenced by his ways? They will beat their swords into plowshares. In other words, the implements of war will be beat into implements of peace. Their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Now notice, he doesn't say that when the Messiah comes, that the whole world will have a time of peace. That's not what he says. But he said this message will go into all the nations. And those people that respond to the message, those people that are touched by the message, those people will be changed and they will no longer be a people that will settle their differences through war. They will be, in other words, he pictures a people of peace. Well, keep in mind, we talk a lot about peace today and it's common with us. Go back through history, the world has never known peace. The world has never known, as uh, so far as our historical records go, the world has never known anything but fighting and hatred. Uh, when we came to this country, and you had the Indian tribes here, the Indian tribes were always fighting one another. In, in the days that Isaiah preached, whoever was the strongest country always defeated the weakest. Assyria defeated every country you could get to. Then Babylon defeated Assyria, and they defeated everybody they could. Then Greece defeated Babylon, and they defeated everybody they could. Then Rome defeated uh, Medo, or Medo-Persia, I should, should say, came in, and they defeated everybody they could. Then here comes Rome, and Rome defeats everybody they could. And you come all the way through the history of the world, and every country, upon reaching any prominence whatsoever, right away starts to conquer the other countries. We, there's never been any exception. People have always warred. They've always fight, fought. It's always been a situation of the strongest taking over. Well, look at our own country right now. Why does every single country in the world have an army? They're scared not to have one. They, what they know is that if you don't have an army, then somebody over here is just going to come in and, and take it from you. Why do we have a police force in every county in the state of Tennessee? 
because there's people out there right now that if we didn't have policemen, they would just come in here and help themselves. And so we have to, I'm, so I'm saying the history of the world has been one of violence and where people take from others, okay? But Isaiah looks forward to a time when a Messiah will come and he's going to be a light to the world and he's going to teach them that you don't settle your differences through war and fighting and he's going to be a people, a person that will so touch people that they will settle their differences in other ways and they will become a people of peace, okay? That's what he prophesied. What you have in Christianity, think about Jesus and some of the statements that he made. When, when Peter was going, to de, was going to defend Jesus with the sword, he told him to put up the sword. He said, those that use the sword will perish with the sword. Christianity, when it was early conquering the world, did not lift its finger to fight anything in a physical way. The Christians always avoided, if, if a Christian was going to be killed, he would run, or they just simply took his life. But we do not, in all of the New Testament, have Christians standing up and fighting in a warlike way. All they fight with is words. Jesus never used anything but words in his dealing. The apostles used nothing but words. The Christian message has been spread with nothing but words. I mean, we don't go in like the Muslims and, and conquer people and force anything on them. And so I'm saying that historically, Christianity has been spread in the same way that Isaiah speaks of here. And the message everywhere Christ is taken is one of peace. In other words, the Christian message is that overcome evil with good, turn the other cheek, go the extra, go the extra mile, forgive, be merciful, be kind, considerate, etc. And by doing this, be like your Heavenly Father. So this is what Isaiah said about someone to come. I'm saying there's nobody in history that you could go to that even could, would come close to fulfilling that except Jesus, and of course it's the claim of the New Testament that, that he fulfilled that. Factually, Isaiah said it. Factually, the Christian message did start in Jerusalem, and factually, it did go to the end of the world. Factually, it did teach a system of peace. The whole world is not in peace because the whole world hasn't bought into the message. But among those individuals that have been influenced, you have a changed person, just like in the uh, prayer by Kelly tonight in thanking God for the change in our lives. We're different because of the change of Christ in our lives. As a young man at 19, I went into the Marine Corps and spent four years in the Marines. Uh, I would be a conscientious objector now. In other words, I would not go, go into the Marines. I don't believe that, that we're going to accomplish anything by, by settling. I think let the world have it and settle their differences, but from a Christian standpoint, I just don't believe that the answer is wars and, and fighting. So what changed my thinking? Well, it's, it's been this. And same with anybody else. It's been changed in their attitude uh, uh, towards fighting and all. It's been the message itself. Okay, uh, <clears throat> turn over to uh, Isaiah 9. Now, remember that uh, we read Matthew 4. And it spoke of the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, and that uh, there, there, there was somebody would come in from Galilee of the Gentiles, and the people of sitting in darkness would see a light. And Matthew quoted that and referred it to Jesus. Okay. Notice Isaiah now is writing this some 700 years before Christ. And remember what we've already read in the, in the second chapter. Now let's start, this is starting in the ninth chapter on through uh, verse uh, 7. Okay? Uh, 
Do you want to read the next one? Okay. Read verses 1 through 7. Uh, what's your first name again? Cheryl. Cheryl. Okay. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment robed in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be up beyond his shoulder. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Okay, now notice the <coughs> Matthew took just the first two verses and when Jesus began to teach in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, in Galilee, he applied this prophecy. Now, here's the context. When he says uh, uh, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, all right, Assyria, when they came against the ten tribes, these two tribes were the first two to fall. So what happens now, at the time Isaiah gives these prophecies, these two lands have just been defeated by Assyria. Now, by the time Assyria is through in 721, they will totally defeat the ten tribes of Israel, and they will carry them into captivity, and they will become known to history as the lost tribes of Israel. Okay, so out of this context where these two tribes have been defeated, he says the time will come, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom. In other words, at the time Isaiah utters this, there is gloom, there is distress. Assyria has taken the land. He humbled the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles. In other words, in the future, you're going to be honored because it's going to be in Galilee of the Gentiles that the Messiah will come. Okay, By the way of the sea, along the Jordan, he describes geographically exactly where it's at. Okay, then here's, he says what will happen. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Okay, continue on down in verse 6. A child is going to be born now, a son given. The government will be on his shoulders. So there's going to be this Messiah, this person to come, that will be born as a child. He will take the government on his shoulders. And notice what he will be called now. And this is just fantastic for a Jew to be saying this of a child that's to be born at the time Isaiah utters this. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, okay? Of all the Jewish prophets and all their prophecies, there never was a time when they referred to anybody in terms of mighty God except God himself or the Messiah. Mighty God, everlasting Father. In other words, this one that's going to be born, you've got a paradox there. On the one hand, he's going to be a child to be born, but he's really the mighty God, the everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. It says, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. 
He'll reign on David's throne. He's going to come through the lineage of David and take over that throne over his kingdom and establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Okay. Let's see what we have as fact and then what we have as interpretation of fact. It is a historical fact that at the time that Assyria defeated these two tribes and there was gloom and despair in the land, that Isaiah wrote this, that he says, you may be in gloom and despair now, but the time is coming when there's going to be a child born. And this child is going to grow up and actually this child is going to be the mighty God, the everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And you will be honored those of you in Zebulun and Naphtali, you will be honored because he will come and began his teaching and there in that area of dark darkness, a light will appear. The end result of his teaching will be that he will establish justice and righteousness from that time and forever and says of the increase of his government, there will be no end. Okay, let's look and see what happened. Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. He's literally raised in Nazareth, in Galilee. He begins his teaching in Galilee. These are each historical facts that Jewish scholars will accept and also Gentile scholars. Uh, there's no historical scholars of this time that will deny that. I mean, those that are not Christian will acknowledge that. He, he was raised in Nazareth. He began teaching in Galilee of the Gentiles. All right, now, as a matter of historical fact, could you say that what began is a very small thing in Galilee kept going for 2,000 years and there's been nothing but increase in it? Even those that don't accept him as the Messiah can't deny that. He began his teaching. and He was a light in, in, a, in a world of war and strife and hatred. Remember at this time when Jesus was born, Rome had conquered Israel. And Israel wanted to rise up and overthrow Rome by force. In fact, remember, that's the reason a lot of them got disturbed at Jesus. It's because he wouldn't fight. And they wanted to rise up. In fact, in John 6 and 15, it records that they, they tried to take him by force and make him king. Uh, the reason that Peter got his sword and was ready to fight is that they thought they were going to rise up and overthrow Rome. But when Jesus came, in a world that believed that you settle all your differences by fighting and war, he came as a man of peace. He rejected the sword. He actually taught to turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, overcome evil with good, be merciful even to people that are not merciful, be kind even to people that are not kind. Uh, he made statements like, when you love people that love you, so what? Everybody does that. You're like God when you love people who don't love you. And when you're kind and good to people that are not kind and good to you, you're being like God. That's the way God is. And by his goodness, he leads people to repent. Well. The question becomes, did Jesus actually do what was said here? Well, it was convincing enough that thousands of Jews in the first century were convinced that he was the fulfillment of all of this. It's so convincing that this is one among many of the reasons why Christianity is today a worldwide religion. In other words, that scholars in every nation who were not even brought up as Christian have sat down and read the New Testament have studied the historical facts, have gone back and looked at these prophecies, and have acknowledged that, that Jesus and Christianity was the fulfillment of the statements made here. I'll tell you another thing in the way of evidence 
that I think comes across as you study this. You and I are made in the image of God. If we believe there is God, then obviously we're made. We're made by God. We should, it seems to me, that anything that is right morally, that no matter what our background, we should inwardly agree with it. Okay? What if you read about a Messiah to come and he was to be a man of war and a man of hatred and a man of bitterness? And what if when you read the New Testament, Jesus was trying to recruit a big army to overthrow Rome? Well, he'd be no different than any other man that ever lived. What makes him totally unique is that the prophecies forecast a man of peace who would overcome by his life and teaching and love. And the actual man that lived was that type of person. And what I would suggest to you, one of the reasons that people have been so turned on by the Bible when they start to read it, uh, and by the New Testament especially, when they get into the life of Christ, is that you find inner identification there. Deep down in your heart, we just simply have, have I can't, how do, how do you prove to somebody, how do you prove to somebody that you ought to try to overcome evil with good? I don't know how you scientifically prove that. But what I do know is that most of us find inner identification with that. And one of the reasons you do is that when you meet people, there are certain people that you like, right? Okay, you meet two different people, and it doesn't matter about the color of their skin or where they're from or anything like that. If a person has these qualities of love and mercy, kindness, compassion, courtesy, concern about other people, I suggest to you that no matter who you are, that turns you on. It just simply turns you on. And, and the opposite turns you off in, inwardly, that even people that are that way are turned off by others. And so when you read this, I'm saying the prophecy is of something that we actually want. It's like, on the one hand, we would love for this type of situation to exist, but it's just simply not here. And so out of that despair, Isaiah looks forward to the time when this person will come that he is absolutely perfect, and he talks about love and justice and righteousness, and he will be a light in a dark world. Okay, let's uh, go to Isaiah, the 11th chapter now. Uh, Christy, let's see. Uh, would you read that uh, 12 verses in the 11th chapter? First 12 verses. Uh-huh. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed the bear with the bear. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra, and the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountains, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the people. The nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. 
In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand the second time to reclaim the remnant that is, is left of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. Okay, now, notice what he says. In the first verse, he says, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Okay, remember, Jesse is the father of David, the, the greatest king in the history of Israel. All right, at the time that Isaiah utters this, this kingdom, uh, the Israelites, are a defeated kingdom. The Assyria has defeated the 12 tribes. Judah is on its way down, and Babylon is going to defeat them. And so you have Israel then as a defeated people. All right, now from the historical framework, where Israel is defeated, he pictures it as a tree that's cut down. But from this tree that's cut down, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. So somebody from the lineage of Jesse, Israel's been whacked down like a tree. He compares it to a stump. But somebody from the lineage of Jesse is coming out of that stump. Okay? From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. So something's coming up from the lineage of Jesse, Israel's been cut down that will bear fruit. It says the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. So this one that comes from the lineage of Jesse, remember when Isaiah utters this, what makes it so impressive is that Israel is a defeated people. And see, if you are a Jew in this day and you've been totally defeated and yet you're supposed to be the people of God preparing the world for the Messiah, can't you see the questions that would run through your mind? How is this going to happen? And so then Isaiah says to you, hey, you've been cut down, but from the, from the stump, there's going to come a root up. A great Messiah is going to come, even though you've been cut down. He will have the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and power, spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. Okay? He will judge with righteousness. He'll judge the needy with justice, with decisions of the poor. All right, in a land, remember, God judged Israel because of the injustice, the unrighteousness. Remember that their leaders were taking bribes, the, the widows and the orphans were mistreated, people were taken advantage of, unrighteousness literally reigned in the land. Uh, again, this is characteristic of people. Uh, think of some of the things that have just gone on recently to come out. Remember when the East Germans over got, were, were in the process of, of trying to get rid of, change their government, Remember, one of the first things they found out is that, that although the majority of the East Germans are relatively poor, that they found out that their leaders were living very high on the hog, that they had been very dishonest, very unjust. In fact, that in all these communist countries, they found out that their leaders were living like kings. They were living like absolute kings, and they've been lying to you down here. It's not equality, that the leaders live like kings, and you live like peasants and all. And so out of that situation, people literally crave for justice. Nobody likes to see the poor oppressed and people mistreated and things like that. So Isaiah is speaking out of a situation where you've had all this injustice, and he looks forward to a great king that will come from the lineage of Jesse. I know it seems to be a cut-off tree right now, but from the lineage of Jesse, this great king is going to come, and he's going to promote justice and righteousness. He's not going to look out here and take anybody's word for it. He's going to know himself, and he's going to promote justice and righteousness. Now, the end result of his teaching will be, and notice beginning with verse 6, 
He's not saying here that a wolf will literally lie down with a lamb or that a leopard will lie down with a goat. That's not what he's saying. Uh, the day that wolves and lambs and leopards and goats begin to lie down together, we're going to have a mess in biology because one is designed by God to be a predator to keep the others in check. And, and they each have their function. And he's not advocating that children play with snakes. That's, that's not his point. What we have here is Aramaic idioms. And when Isaiah used this language, it was not unique to Isaiah. This business of changing people's character so that a violent person was now not violent was depicted in Isaiah's day in these terms. In other words, the lion will eat straw like an ox. That was an Aramaic idiom of saying, hey, this big bully over here is going to be changed. He's going to become meek as a lamb. And so each of these statements were poetic metaphors. They're idioms that was used in a common way by the people of that day to refer in, to the change of character. And the reason this is important because some people come and read that literal and they're looking forward to a day when wolf and lambs will literally lie down together. And that's not going to happen. It's not literal. It's an, it's an idiom out of that culture. And he referred to the change in character as a result of teaching. All right, notice now what brings it about. Look at verse uh, 4. In the middle of the verse, he will strike the earth with a rod of his mouth. In other words, when the Messiah comes, the only way he's going to affect the earth is with his teaching. He's not going to force anything on anybody. All he's going to do is teach. So he will strike the earth with a rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. How's he going to slay the wicked? Not with a sword, but with his lips. What he says. Righteousness then will be his belt. And then it says the wolf will lie down with the lamb. Notice when he says the wolf will lie down with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the goat, he says that right after he says that the righteous one will slay the wicked with his lips. And this is then what will result. So he's saying when the Messiah comes, you've got all these violent people, but when the Messiah comes, as a result of his teaching, people that have been violent, people who have warred, people that have been aggressive, these people will totally change. And, they, and it'll be like seeing the, uh, a lion become like a lamb. And so he depicts then and uses the Aramaic idioms to describe this change that will actually come into people. But notice all the Messiah is doing is talking. He's giving information, and then the information affects them in that way. Okay, then in verse 9, they will neither harm nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. Notice, it doesn't say that you'll have a time here on this earth when there never will be violence, but it's only in his holy mountain. In other words, only among those people who have been affected by the teaching, you will have this change in character. And so the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. Okay, now let's ask ourselves. Historically, did this happen? When Jesus came, historically, did Jesus teach love, mercy, compassion, peace, overcome evil with good, love your neighbor, do unto your neighbors you would have them do unto you? I don't know anybody that denies that he taught that, even those that don't believe in him as a Messiah. Okay, he taught that. Is it a truth that wherever the message of Christianity has gone, there have been people that have changed their entire life as a result of that message? Well, that's a truth. 
that all through the centuries there have been people that were very violent, that were very aggressive, who settled their differences by fighting, and as a result of becoming a Christian, changed and went the other way, and they no longer believe in hatred, they don't believe in fighting, they don't want to kill anybody, they believe in, in love and mercy and kindness. Now, I'm not saying that everybody that claims to be a Christian is a Christian, but I'm saying among those who actually have been influenced and have, and have made that decision, that change has taken place, and notice it says it would go out to the ends of the earth. Well, then the question is, is it a historical fact that Christianity has spread throughout the entire earth? It has. Is it a fact that the message is to tell people to love one another, to overcome evil with good, etc.? That's a fact. Well, isn't it interesting that Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus was born, looks down and sees somebody of the lineage of, Je of Jesse. Well, was Jesus by way of the lineage of Jesse through David? He was, and the Jews don't even deny that. So he looks down and he sees somebody, and at a time when Zebulun and Naphtali is defeated and they're in despair, he sees them being honored by this great teacher who's going to come and be a source of light and teach about righteousness and effect. Well, is it a historical fact that Jesus came, that he was born, that he was raised in that area, that he began to teach, that he was a source of life, and that his teaching on all of this has gone throughout the entire world? That's a historical fact. Okay, now, it says in verse 10, in the day the root of Jesse will stand, in that day, this day down at the time when the Messiah comes, the, he will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him. In other words, again, Isaiah's Messiah is not just a Jewish Messiah. Isaiah's Messiah is a Messiah for all the world. All the nations will flock to him. He will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the remnant of his people. Okay? Notice God had brought them the first time out of Egypt. Now they've sinned and, and they've been defeated and scattered. But there will come a time when he will reach out and they will have a second chance. And that will be at the time of the Messiah. And verse 12, he will raise a banner to the nations, gather the exiles of Israel. He'll assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. And so Israel is going to be scattered all over the world. But when the Messiah comes, he will be for all the nations and the message will go out to where the Israelites have been scattered all over the world. By the way, even in the restoration, when after the Babylonian captivity, the Jews came back to Jerusalem, only a small percentage. Historians estimate that maybe, maybe 15 or 20 percent of them, the, small, the biggest percent stayed in Babylon and stayed in all those countries. And when Jesus comes on the scene, those Jews that are converted on Pentecost are from these places all over the world. Most of them did not come back. And yet, beginning in Jerusalem at Pentecost, you have this message of Christianity that will go out into all these people, and Isaiah speaks of that day. And so Matthew quotes it, challenges the people to go back and see that, hey, everything that happened here was just like Isaiah said. Okay, let's uh, go to Isaiah 42 now. We'll look at uh, three more passages for the study tonight. Isaiah 42. Uh, Tammy, you want to read that place, please, on through the ninth verse, 1 through 9. Here's a servant whom I oppose, a chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. 
Ruth Ruth will not break, and the smoldering wick will not snuff out. In faithfulness, in faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter the judge, so he establishes justice on the earth. In his law, the islands will put their hope. This is what God the Lord says. He who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes of it, who gives breath to his people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will speak to you and remake you to be a covenant to the people and a light to the Gentiles. To open the eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. See the former things have taken place, and new things I declare. Before they sprang into being, I announced them to you. Okay, now notice first verse 9. Isaiah claims to be speaking of something in the future. And he says, former things have taken place. In other words, there's things that I have already said that have come about. In other words, that gives you confidence in me as a prophet, is what he's saying. And now new things I declare before they come into being, I announce them. Isaiah was calling on the Jew of his day to have faith in those prophecies of the Messiah to come based on the statements he had already made that had come to pass in their generation. Okay, now notice what he said. Isaiah describes somebody that's coming that is a servant. He refers to him as a servant. He says he will bring justice to the nations. That's in verse 1. Notice the type of character he has. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice. A bruised reed he will not break. In other words, we're talking about a meek person who will come and bring justice, but he's not going to do it as some hollering, shouting maniac. We've got a meek, mild individual that's coming and going to have this kind of effect on the world. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. In other words, he's going to bring justice to the earth. Then he goes on down and he identif identifies himself. God does. It's speaking. And then in verse 6, look at the statement that's made there in the latter part of verse 6. Right in the middle of the verse. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people, a light to the Gentiles. So this one that's coming is actually going to be a covenant. In other words, the, the only covenant that the Jew was aware of at this time was the covenant he had with God through the law of Moses that we refer to as the old covenant. But he says, this one that's to come, I'm going to make him my covenant to the people, a light to the Gentiles. He's not going to be a covenant just for the Jew. He's going to be a covenant to the whole world, to the Gentiles. What he's going to do is he's going to open the eyes that are blind to free captives from prison, to release those from dungeon, who sit in dungeon to the, from the dungeon who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name, and I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to idols. Okay, Isaiah then identifies the Messiah as a servant of God, and that God would put his spirit in him, and he would bring justice to the nations. He would be of a certain type of a meek character. He would not get discouraged along the way. He would literally, in some sense, be a covenant between God and the people. Okay, and then he says, I've done the former things. I'm going to do this too. Well, could you describe the character of Jesus that's revealed in the Gospels as comparable to what we have here? I don't think we, anybody would, would argue with that. Does the New Testament set forth Jesus as a covenant between the people? Well, all of the New Testament. We call it the New Covenant, the New Testament. That It's the New Covenant that's made 
and, and, the, and the teaching is that we can have peace with God and be forgiven because of the sacrifice that he's given on our behalf. Okay, now, I was going to go to, let's skip over to the 52nd chapter. 52nd, we'll look at this as the last one. I was going to read one others, but I'll go to the 50, 52nd chapter, beginning with verse uh, 13. Now, a lot of times people start this in verse 53, but really it starts with verse 13. We're still with this suffering servant that's going to come. Now, it was in this passage that, remember, the Ethiopian eunuch was reading this when Philip taught him and said, Isaiah was speaking of Jesus. All right, look at verse 7 and 8. This is what Philip was reading. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Somebody that's going to come and be afflicted and yet not complain about it. He's led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shears is done, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Okay, so here is somebody that is going to be oppressed, judged, taken away like a sheep to the slaughter, and yet he doesn't complain. That's what, that's what the eunuch was reading. Well, let's look at the whole context. And as you read this, think of Jesus as he's revealed in the New Testament. i tell you how potent this particular passage is here. In the 1700s, in the age of enlightenment, so-called, the uh, number one atheist of the day was Voltaire. And Voltaire was so aggressive against the Bible that he made the statement that within 50 years, you know, that Christianity would cease to be and that people will even quit printing the Bible. He thought that all the scientific enlightenment would do away with religion. Well, of course, 50 years after his death, the, the British Bible Society actually purchased his house and printing press, and they were printing Bibles on that very printing press. But I'm saying he was a devout atheist. All right, Voltaire made this statement about the passage we're going to read. He said, if it could be empirically proven to him that this was written before the New Testament, that he would have to acknowledge that this was a real case of prophecy. This is, has been thought of all through the centuries as one of the most fantastic prophecies about Jesus in the New Testament. It's, uh, I know back before I was converted, uh, I thought it was, it, it was amazing. When I, when I thought of just the historical facts that I knew about Jesus that, that, that everybody would have to put in the historical fact category, and then this statement here, and that somebody could write this seven, over 700 years before Jesus was born was amazing. Now, there's several things amazing about it. One is it's full of paradoxes. Everything about the Messiah is paradoxes. On the one hand, he's a great king who's a conqueror and lives forever. On the other hand, he's a suffering servant who seems to be defeated. And yet, in being defeated, he conquers. You see, now you try to tie that together if you don't have the New Testament. How can somebody be a conquering king and a suffering servant at the same time? How can he live forever and how can he die? Well, there's no explanation other than the resurrection if, it, if it's so. Okay, let's start with uh, verse 13 of... Let's see, uh, Chuck, uh, let's see, read on through, uh, come on down through about verse uh, uh, two or three of the, uh, let's see, read that through the, I'm trying to divide it up because it's a long, I'm going to read all the way through the third chapter. Uh, read about, let's see, halfway would be through about uh, verse three. Read that through 53.3, and then... Uh, uh, 
pick up, okay, uh, Kelly, you pick up and read that on to the end of the chapter. If my female servant will act wisely, she will be raised and lifted up in my leaves also. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So will he sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. But what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message, and who has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one of, from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before his shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, he considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people, to whom this growth was due. His grave was assigned with the wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge of the righteous one, my servant will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allow him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death, and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many, and interceded for the transgressors. Okay, now look at what he said here. This servant, beginning back in verse 13 of chapter 52, would act wisely, he would be raised, lifted up, highly exalted. So he's going to be so wise that he's going to be lifted up and highly exalted in his day. Okay? There are many that were appalled at him. His appearance was so disfigured. So on the one hand, he acts wisely, so wisely that he's lifted up and highly exalted. On the other hand, there were just as there were some people that were so turned on that they exalted him, there were others so appalled at him that they affected him, that they challenged him and attacked him physically. And his farm was marred beyond human likeness. Okay? So notice the paradox there. Some people are so turned on that they exalt him. But then others are so turned off and so appalled that they actually literally attack him physically. But this person now, exalted by some, turned on and attacked physically by others, he says he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. What they've not heard, they will understand. So it says this event is going to be so impressive that it will go out to many nations. Even kings are going to be stunned and turned on by this. Uh, I, I think of many things there, even like when Paul presents the case to the 
the Roman kings, and even though they didn't become Christians, that they were very impressed by the information and the evidence that was there. Uh, who has believed our message? Uh, he, the Messiah is going out, but most people are going to reject it. Uh, he's, uh, most are going to reject it as it goes out. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Okay, it grew up before him like a tender shoot and a root out of a dry ground. Israel is a defeated nation. He, he's born in Bethlehem of Judea. He begins his teaching in Nazareth. There is nothing about him physically. His stature, his appearance, or as one translation would render it, his, 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 his stately position. There is absolutely nothing about him physically to attract you. All right, think about Christ. Think of anything in his position that would attract anybody. A carpenter's son is what you, what you can say. There's nothing there. Think of anything about his physical description that you read about in the New Testament. There's not one word there. So there is absolutely nothing about him physically or in his position that would attract anybody, and yet he's going to affect many. Okay, then look at the statement. He's despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows. Okay, in verse 4, even though he's despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, he really is taking up our infirmities, and he's carrying our sorrows. Yet at the very time he takes up our infirmities, we considered him stricken by God and smitten. And so at the very time, remember that the New Testament pictures him being crucified and taken upon himself the sins of mankind, the very people looked at him, and remember they even mocked him and said, you know, if you are who you claim to be, then come down from there. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds we are healed. So it depicts somebody that is suffering vicariously for other people. Isaiah is picturing a righteous man who is suffering vicariously for other people who really deserve it, but yet he's the one that's getting it. We, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us turned his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So the concept of a righteous, perfect man coming and actually taking upon himself the sins and the consequences and the judgment that other people deserve is pictured right here by Isaiah. He's oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. In other words, he, he doesn't complain. He just willfully takes what is there. He, by oppression and judgment, he's taken away. He's cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of the people he was stricken. It says he was assigned a grave with the wicked. Well, we know he was crucified between two thieves with a rich man in his death. Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, came to get the body, and he, was born, and he was buried in his tomb. Then it says in verse 10, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And he was a guilt offering, and he will see his offspring prolong his days. The will of the Lord will be prospered in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life. So notice now, he's not only going to die, but after he dies, he's going to see the light of life and be satisfied by the knowledge that my righteous servant will justify many. So it says, although he will suffer and die, he will then see life, and he'll, he'll derive his satisfaction from the fact that his sacrifice calls others to live. Therefore, I'll give him a portion for the great. He'll divide the spoils of the strong. He poured out his life unto death. He was numbered with transgressors. Jesus died. He was put to death between two thieves, bore the sin of many, 
made intercession for the transgressors. Now, try to think of anything. Everybody that writes, writes out of his experiences and, and his culture and his religion and, and, his, and his thinking. And you first have to ask yourself the question, what is there in all of Isaiah's information basis that can give us something like this? And then when you read that, look at it from the standpoint, what if it was not here in Isaiah, but in the New Testament, this was set forth as a synopsis, a summary at the end of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Would it fit it? And I believe that if I had never read this in Isaiah, and read it at the end of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as a synopsis of what happened, I, it, it fit it perfect. This is why that Voltaire was so turned on and said that if it could be proven to him. In other words, see, Voltaire, when we say he was an unbeliever, he believed that Jesus lived, and he believed that Jesus was executed, and he believed that there was an empty tomb, and he believed that Jesus taught righteousness, etc. He just simply didn't believe in the resurrection. He thought he was just a good man, and those things happened to him. Well, then here you've got a book that purports to have been written 700 years in advance, and you've got him picturing this suffering servant who dies for others, comes to life, is satisfied in what he did because others lived through him. He's put to death with, with transgressors. He's buried in a rich man's tomb, and then all others benefit from the process. And he's a person who is attractive to others based on his character and what he did. There's nothing about his appearance physically. There's nothing about his position that turns on or attracts people. And, and to this day, for anybody that's a Christian, there is not one word in the Bible about what Jesus looked at. In fact, probably one of the greatest injustices to Jesus is this six-foot-four-inch, <coughs> lily-white individual with long hair and a halo over his head. Uh, the typical Jew of Jesus' day was about five foot three inches tall, and he would have been very dark-complected, black-haired, the Oriental, and all anything that's mentioned of Jesus would he would have been just a typical Jewish person by appearance in there. So you're, you don't even know anything about him physically. He had no high position. If you're turned on by Jesus, you're turned on by his teaching and what he did, and, and that's it. Now, in all of history, notice it, it makes that statement about the appearance and all. In all of history, there's not a single solitary biography that I'm aware of, of, of any great individual that does not give you a physical description. Think of Napoleon, and the first thing I think of, he was a real short man. I mean, that was a first, and when they talk about George Washington, one of the first things you're taught is he was bigger than the average. George Washington was 6'2". And I don't know of Abraham Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln was 6'4", six, 6'5", six, six, and he was gaudy and not very attractive. And you go right down the line, and any character you read about in history, you and I, when we talk about people, we start off describing them physically. I mean, and look at, look at the way we relate to one another. He's black, or he's white, or he's in between, or she's uh, short or tall, and that's the way we relate to people. But with Jesus, was he short or tall? Uh, what, what, nothing about his hair, nothing about his color, nothing about his size. There was no high position. There is absolutely nothing. And I'm saying that Isaiah speaks of a Messiah that will attract people 100% based on his character and what he does, not on anything about his physique or his position in life. Okay, that's the passage that Eunuch was reading. All he needed was for Philip to tell, talk to him about the life of Christ, and he had no, no problem tying the two together.
Anybody with any uh, comment or observation over what we've been talking about tonight? Seems like sometimes whenever Isaiah is prophesying, it almost seems like he's there. Like reading Isaiah 53 says, mm -hmm. "Surely he took up our infirmities, yet we we considered him stricken, but he was pierced for our transgressions. We all like sheep have gone astray." So he almost it looks like he thinks he's there. He was. He. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing about the prophecies of the Messiah, they are written in the future perfect tense. In other words, that they. The prophecies, like this right here, speaks of it as if it has already happened or is happening right then. And then yet it's something over here in the future. And what has happened is that the prophet has seen this in a vision. And just like he has, it, has seen it and he writes it as an event that's happened. And of course it was hundreds of years down the pike. Now notice again with Isaiah, this paradox he has. On the one hand, he has a great king coming. But this great king is a suffering servant. And one thing he's consistent in all the way through is that he all his effect is through his life and teaching. And in all of the prophecies of the Messiah to come, his effect on the world would always be through his life and his teaching and what he actually did. Anybody else with any? And remember again, we've just looked at a little bit in Isaiah that when you think that all the other prophets, there's so many of them that had statements to say, no one of them saw the complete picture, and yet we can take all the material together like a puzzle and put it together and, and picture the event that come down without, without them contradicting one another. Okay, nobody has any comment. We'll pause for tonight.